0: Revelation chapter number four. We're going to read through this entire chapter. It's only 11 verses, but there's a lot to cover here. But before we do, I do want to make a note. Many commentators and people have said this. I don't know who thought of it first, but when you're approaching this portion of Revelation chapter four to the end of the book, remember this, the plain thing is the main thing. All right. So that's my job as a pastor is to try to help guide you on this journey through this book verse by verse and to help you understand here are some things that we don't know. Here are some things that we think are probably this And here are some things that we for sure know. And to take those for sure's, to take those plain things, and to make them the main things. And it's if you're not careful, you'll read through Revelation, and you will miss the forest for the trees, and you'll end up like Hansel and Gretel lost in the woods. You'll get so focused on the minutia of some of these descriptions and some of these texts that you'll fail to zoom out And to see the big picture and what's at play. And honestly, Revelation has been subject to a tremendous amount of bad or poor teaching and preaching because it gets so focused on the little details that it fails to see the big picture. And I will do my best week after week to help us see the big picture while at the same time trying to explain some of the, some of the minutiae. So, Understand that, and let's start to work through this little by little. I want us to read the first three verses, and we'll break this up in chunks this morning. After this, I, John, looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me. And that would be amazing, a voice that's loud and bold like a trumpet. And the voice said, "'Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter.'" And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like Jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. So let's just stop there for a minute. What you need to know as we enter into chapter number four is that it's all new. So this is a new section of Revelation, first of all. If you remember back in chapter one, Jesus tells John, I have a revelation for you. This revelation is a prophecy, and this is going to be in kind of these installments. I want you to write uh, the things that were, I want you to write the things that are, and I want you to write the things which shall be hereafter. And we told you, this serves probably as a table of contents for the book. That chapter one's all about what is and what John has seen in that moment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then what uh, is happening in the church is next up, chapters two and three. And then the things which are to come, the prophecy or the future-oriented section is chapters four through 22. So we're starting a brand new section. And if you read chapter three into chapter four, it becomes very apparent. Because chapter three is right to this church this and right to this church this and right to this church this. Then chapter four, all of a sudden, there's this change in the narrative after this. After this, I looked and there's this door in heaven that's being opened up and I'm being called to come up into heaven and I'm observing and there's this whole scene change in this whole new section of the book and understand that as we enter into this, that it'll feel different and it's supposed to feel different. Also understand that there's a little section in the big section. So four through 22 are the big section of prophecy. Four through eight are the next little section that we'll cover over a number of weeks. And there is this continuing story that really sews together the beginning of chapter four all the way to the end of chapter eight. And here's the cliff note version. John's in heaven. He sees the throne. He sees all this worship. Chapter 5, the worship continues. There's now this book that's introduced with seven seals. And everyone's like, who can open this? No one's worthy. Then all of a sudden, Jesus enters the room and he opens the book. Chapters 6, 7, and 8, he unseals it one seal at a time. And so chapters 4 through 8 are the section that we're just now starting and there's so much I wanna give you from the section in general, but I will do my best to pace it out week by week by week and give it to you progressively as we go along. You also need to know that this is likely a new stage for the church. So I want you to have the right frame of reference as you're reading this. If you read a book on Revelation Many times the author of a book will insert a chapter on the rapture of the church in this moment. And while I'm not going to take a sermon on the rapture of the church this morning and insert it right here, if you will indulge me, I'd like to spend a few moments talking about why would an author put a chapter on the rapture of the church right here in between chapters three and four of Revelation And why would that come into play as you're trying to understand Revelation? So let me back up a half step. The Bible teaches that there will be a time in the future of tremendous or great tribulation. A time when the wrath of God is poured out on the world in a way that the world has never seen. The closest you could get to it would be Noah and the flood, but in a way that the world has never seen. The Old Testament prophets talk about this. Jesus talks about this. The New Testament apostles talk about this. Revelation talks about this. This is actually coming up and it's probably some of the toughest stuff to to teach and preach through that will be here in just a matter of a few weeks. We'll see Revelation start to talk about these trumpets and bowls and vials and this wrath. If you remember back to chapter one, we already kind of primed the pump a little bit. Because chapter one told us and gave us a head start that there was going to be a return of Jesus upon which all of the earth dwellers would wail and weep. And we talked very briefly about this. So there's this idea in the Bible that is abundantly clear that there is a great time of tribulation coming. There is also an idea in the Bible that the church the saints of God of this age, at some point in time, which we don't know when, they will be raptured or caught up or Jesus will snatch his bride away. And you may have seen TV shows or movies or read a book or something along these lines that they will be caught up and they will be raptured out of this world. And people try to speculate on where does the rapture take place? When does it take place? in relationship to the tribulation. Now, nobody knows when a rapture would take place. Nobody knows it. The Bible says it will happen, but nobody knows when. If someone tells you that they know when, that they have a date on their calendar, then just ask them to deed you their house, effective the date after they know the rapture will happen and see if they do it, because they won't. Nobody knows. But people do try to figure out in relationship to the tribulation, when does this happen? Does it happen before the tribulation takes place? It's rapture, then tribulation. What is known as a pre-tribulational rapture. I know those are big words or what's oftentimes referred to in shorthand as pre-trib. Does it happen in the middle of this tribulation, what's referred to as mid-trib? Does it happen at the end or what's referred to as post-trib? How do these correspond with each other? I've even had people over the years who've been around church a while just walk up to me and say, Pastor, pre, mid, or post. And I know what they're saying. They're using shorthand or they're using churchese to say, when do you think a rapture would happen in relationship to a tribulation? Now, our church has and continues to teach that best we can tell from the Bible, the rapture would happen before a tribulation happens. And I want to take a moment to tell you five reasons why we do that. And you can study further on your own if you want to. And some of you may say, I studied further and I think it happens in the middle. I don't agree with that. And that's fine. It's not something that we have to get completely worked up about, but it would make sense in light of revelation. And you'll see why in a minute. Okay. So five reasons why we would teach a pre-trib rapture and why maybe it, this is happening kind of in this instance here in Revelation. Number one, the, the language of a rapture and the language of Revelation four one are similar to each other. Not, not identical, but some have speculated and said that kind of seems similar. When you talk about this voice of a trumpet and being called up, that when you read about the rapture and say Thessalonians, you would find that the Lord himself descends from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and that we are caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And that there seems to be a similarity of language that perhaps what John is experiencing here is a prototype of what the church will experience. Number two, and this would be, I think, a better reason, is that as we study through Revelation, you're going to notice the church disappears, So for three chapters that we've been through right now, we've seen the church mentioned 19 times. When you get to chapter four and five and six and seven and eight and nine and 10 and 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, and I could go on, the church disappears from the pages and it's no longer mentioned. And some have said, man, that's curious Why is the church no longer mentioned? And it would make sense if you track with the book all the wrath and judgment that is to come, it would make sense if the church is raptured and then we get to see the future of worship and judgment and that the church is actually in heaven. Number three is that there's a lack of practical instruction for the church when you get to the judgment section of Revelation. There is this this stereotypical way of explaining hard times in the New Testament. Here's how it goes. A New Testament author will say, hey, they're going to persecute you. Uh, there's going to be some circumstantially negative things that come your way. And then there will be some instruction like, so let your moderation be known to all men and don't be a psychopath. And the psychopath is my paraphrase, but you'll get that. The trying of your faith is going to work patience. This is going to bring about a positive change in you. This will make you more like Jesus. So appreciate this. Those sorts of things will happen. And you don't get any of that sandwiched into all of this tribulation and judgment that's about to come. It's it's right in the future here in Revelation. And a reason for that could very well be because the church is now in heaven and they don't need this practical instruction any longer. So it's just a straightforward, here's the wrath and here's the judgment. Number four is the doctrine of imminency. So the Bible indicates when it talks about the rapture that this could happen at any moment and that there is nothing preventing it. So imminency, think, could happen at any time. Think, if you would, Christmas Eve, looking for Santa, Okay. You don't look for Santa on July 24th because there's many days that need to come. I know, don't send me an email that Santa's not real and all that, just spare me. I'm just making a silly point. You look for Santa on December 24th because the next day is Christmas and that's the next day that it will happen, Okay there is this idea that we're looking for Jesus to come back and get us, and that it could happen at any moment, and that it's not July 24th, but that it's Christmas Eve, and that this could happen at any moment, and no matter how you want to line up in time's events, there's lots of things Revelation will tell us. There's this whole, we'll get to it in time, Antichrist, and Mark of the Beast, and tribulation, and judgment, and new heaven, and new earth, and however you want to line up those dominoes, the first domino that will fall is the rapture, and that's the doctrine of that the Bible, I think, clearly teaches. The fifth reason is that we're spared from wrath. If you look at the Bible over and over again, it will tell us that we, the children of God, who are justified by faith in Jesus and by the blood of Jesus, are spared from wrath. So for example, Romans will tell you, we're justified by his blood, so we'll save from wrath through him. Thessalonians will say, God hasn't appointed us to wrath. And if one thing is true about the tribulation. It's that it is the wrath of God being poured out. And I know that's an unpopular topic, but it is the truth of what will happen. And the idea is that we as a church will be spared from this, so we will be gone and the wrath will not be there for us. So I could explain more, but I'll leave it there to say many people, of which I'm one, would say, the Revelation 3 to 4, there isn't, there isn't a mention specifically of the rapture here, but best we can tell if we're laying out a calendar of end times events, the rapture would have just happened and all of these events now that unfold are post-rapture that we'll begin to see throughout the rest of these chapters. And that will help you make sense of why the church isn't mentioned expressly in the rest of these chapters as we move through them for a number of months. So it's new, that's the point. It's a new section for John. It is a new stage for the church and it's certainly a whole new world that John gets to see. And by a whole new world, I don't mean what Jasmine got on Aladdin's carpet, okay? I mean, it's heaven. There is this door that is opened and John gets to go to heaven and look around at what that will be like And here's what it says. I want to reread verse three. This is the start of it. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight likened to an emerald. Now John had heard about heaven. John had certainly preached about heaven, but John had never had anything like this where he gets to see the home of God, where he gets to see the glorious one sitting on the throne. And what an experience that must've been. As he says, there's this throne and the one that sits on the throne, best I can explain it is like jasper and sardine. Jasper being clear like a diamond, sardine being blood red. It's as if there's a king with this, with this splendid crown with these huge, maybe ruby red and diamonds in the crown. And this king is standing in the noonday sun and that crown is just splendid sparkling like, like you can't believe. It's as if you took that crown and you just made it the whole king. And he is just shining like like sardine. He's shining like jasper. There is this, this glory that's just emanating from him. And around the throne is this emerald, this green halo, this rainbow that encompasses this throne and this aura that is there with the, with the shining like a diamond and this ruby red coming in this green aura that it's like something I've never seen before. It's the throne of God and, and God himself shining in this way. And John begins to try to unpack this. And what's interesting, but not surprising, is that this lines up with the rest of scripture. I have put some notes in your handout today that I will not elaborate on, but allow you to study them in your own time. But the throne room of God is a matter of progressive revelation in the Bible. Isaiah first writes about the throne room of God where he sees These cherubim worshiping God and crying, holy, holy, holy. A hundred years later, Ezekiel adds some color to his vision and Ezekiel gets this vision of heaven and he doesn't just see the throne and and these cherubim crying, holy, 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 but Ezekiel sees these beasts that are introduced and he sees God and he begins to talk as though God is blazing like a fire and the shining and this brilliance that's coming from him and this rainbow that Ezekiel talks about. Daniel begins to add definition and Daniel enters into the courtroom of God and he sees God himself, the ancient of days. But Daniel adds to this, that it's not just the ancient of days, but there's someone else who is almost godlike, who receives worship and power and and is is not the father, but is there as well in his Godness and refers to the son of man who's coming. And John will elaborate on all of this. The throne, the angels, the cherubim, the beast, the, the rainbow. The Chapter five will be the son of man and, and Jesus coming in into the throne room to receive praise alongside of the father. And he elaborates on all of this for two chapters that we get to observe. But for now, we'll suffice it to say this. As John begins to describe this whole other reality that is reality. He does it in such a way where you're left with eyes popping and jaw dropped and you're left seeing God in his Godness and you're left not thinking that God is flimsy or has a headache or has somehow diminished in power at all, but you're left thinking that this throne is secure And God's words are sure. When he says, I I have something that I will show you that will happen in the future. It must happen in the future. I know what the future holds. Not everybody can say that. I know what the future holds and I'm going to show you and let let me uh, help you observe who I am and all of my glory and all of my majesty and all of my splendor and you do not get the sense that John walks in and says, what up, homeboy? Dap it up and starts just chumming with God. That's not what you get you get the sense that while God is our father and we do have a relational connection to God that we best not forget that God is our father which art in heaven and there is majesty and glory and other worldliness and that he is a being that is superior to us and that we are the creation. You don't get this sense that while we are on the same level and that he will share some of his glory and share some of his reigning with us, more to come on that next week, you do not get the sense that we are in fact on the same level. There is no indication whatsoever that somehow God is going to be impeached or God is going to be removed from his throne. You get the sense that he is the king of the mountain. And if you want to try to pull him off that mountain, you will fail that God is God. He begins to describe the splendor and the glory and the majesty of an almighty God seated on a permanent throne. And you need to know that it is this throne that deserves worship, that is worthy of our praise. And while we know this as Christians, practically speaking, we functionally set up our own Little thrones all the time. And practically speaking, I and you many times cease to worship the one who is worthy of praise and start to make our own little functional idols and begin to put together our little IKEA throne and sit on it and think that we're the stuff. And this chapter serves as a reminder that God is God. And he is worthy of our worship and he is worthy of our praise. And don't forget it. And here's how he continues. It's not just this brief description, but he gives us a lot more. And I'm going to call this little section, 24 elders, seven lamps and four beasts. And this is the part where people's minds blow up and they they spin their wheels and they get sidetracked real fast. Verse four, round about the throne, there were four and 20 seats. Upon the seats, I saw four and 20 elders sitting clothed in white raiment and had on their heads crowns of gold. Pastor, what's this? And these 24 elders will come up a lot in Revelation. Here's what we know. We know these 24 elders are humans that have been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. We'll see this next week in chapter five. We know that. The white raiment and even the crowns that they've won, the victor's crown seem to indicate this. Who exactly are they? Well, they're probably older males that are representative of a larger group. That's what an elder is. We don't know for sure, but probably the 12 leaders of the tribes of Israel, the patriarchs of Israel and the 12 apostles. You will see later in Revelation that there's a new heaven and that there are 12 gates. Each gate will be named with the name of a patriarch of Israel, one of the tribes of Israel. And there are 12 foundation stones for a new heaven. And each foundation stone is inscribed with the name of one of the 12 apostles. So it's not unusual for these two groups of 12 to be put together for 24. Do we know this for sure? No, but... This is likely, when you see the 24 elders, indicative of redeemed mankind. All of the saints of God, whether Old Testament or New Testament saints, all of the redeemed is what the 24 elders represent. Then you go on, verse number five, out of the throne proceeds lightnings and thunderings and voices. And it's as if the volume starts to get turned up real loud. And this is not a quiet place. This is not a whisper. This is not the library. This is thunderings and voices and trumpets and lightnings and whatever laser light show you saw at Disney that you were impressed with. Let me ensure that this, it it pales in comparison to what you're seeing here in the throne room of God. And he says this in the middle of verse five, there were seven lamps of burning fire before the throne and thank God that he just explains, well, what are the seven lamps? Which are the seven spirits of God. We saw these in chapter one. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you a whole history again of, of this, but probably just seven angels. So here's the throne of God. Dazzling, brilliant, green aura, rainbow, thunders and lightnings and volume. And there's the redeemed of mankind represented. And there are angels represented all around the throne. And then Verse number, where are we at? Six, before the throne was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Is the emphasis on sea, like there's a sea, it's water, and it looks like glass, it's really clear? Or is the emphasis on glass? It's a glass floor, but it's so expansive that it looks like a sea. I don't know. And neither do you. We'll find out one day. Either way, Put a throne right in front of a giant crystal clear sea or put it on on a massive floor of glass. I'm cool with either. I think it'll be fantastic. And here, here's what it says. In the midst of the throne, around about the throne were four beasts. And this is like, are are we reading sci-fi here? What's a four beasts full of eyes before and behind? The first beast was like a lion. The second beast like a calf. The third beast had a face as a man. And the fourth beast was a flying eagle. What's that mean? I don't know. What, well, what, is, what does eagle mean as opposed to calf, as opposed to, listen, people race their motors all day long and I, I read and read and read a thousand theories of these four represent the four gospel authors and these four represent these four distinct tribes of Israel and these four represent this and these four represent that. We have no idea. They probably don't represent anything. He's probably just describing what he saw. That there, there are... Humans redeemed, there are angels, and then there are these other things. Beasts don't love the word beast because it makes you think beauty and the beast. He's saying living creatures. These other things that are creatures that are living that aren't robots are there as well. And I don't know, they're not angel category and they're not human category. There's some sort of other category and they're around the throne and they look like something you've never seen, which don't, don't be amazed by that. If you go to the bottom of the ocean, there are creatures down there that would freak us out that we don't know what they look like and we haven't discovered yet. So some sort of creature that looks strange is, is not unusual. If you've seen a giraffe, you get this. Full of eyes all around the throne. And I don't think there's a hidden meaning. I think this is where the plain thing becomes the main thing. Well, what's the plain thing? Here's the plain thing. And here's the whole whole chapter. Everything is worshiping. Look at verse number eight. The four beasts, each of them had six wings about them. They're full of eyes within and they rest not day and night. And they say, holy, 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 Lord God almighty, which was and is and is to come. And those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who lives forever and ever. And the 24 elders, They fall down before him, which sat on the throne, and they worship him that lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. What is descriptive is the appearance of the beast. What is prescriptive is that everything worships. That God is in his godness, and no matter what it is, angel, man, beast, they are all there worshiping. And the idea of there being four beasts, the idea of eyes all around means they see it all. Like if you go to the eye doctor and they cover this eye, read read the line, and then you get to open your other eye, your field of vision expands, right? Because you have two now. That was four. You have two now. Imagine if you could put those eyes all the way around. You'd be able to see 360, right? And imagine if you did that, but then you did it again and again and again all around your body. You're not missing a beat. And they do it day and night. They don't don't take naps. Somehow they don't need to recharge. They're there all the time. And here's the idea. These that are in the presence of God all the time without ceasing and see everything, they cry, holy, holy. Holy. I don't know about you, but I would be a little bit threatened by the idea of some sort of creature that could see all around and be with me all the time and watch me day and night. I dare say that those creatures would cry less than holy, holy, holy about my life. But they see it all. And they still attest to the fact and and they see and know more than you and I ever would. And they'll tell you the truth. He was, and he is, and he is to come. He's almighty. He's holy, holy, holy. That's the point. And they worship him. And we're gonna to get to chapter five next week. And it's not just God that they worship, but it is, it is also his son. And it's not just the elders, but all of the redeemed now are there. And we're told that there's 10,000 times 10,000, which if you're not a math major, that's a hundred million. And there's a hundred million around the sea of glass, around the throne, praising and worshiping and adoring the Father in Jesus. Now, I've been in some rooms with a lot of people as we praise. I've been in a room with 7,000 people all singing at the top of our lungs, praising and worshiping. I've been in a stadium with 40,000 people where we screamed and cheered for our favorite sports team and the energy and the impact. I can't imagine what it would be like to be with a hundred million saints singing and praising and worshiping and we'll see that there's prayers and there's there's harps and instruments and there's all of this worship that is happening being given to our God. A hundred million. And not one of them sitting in the lobby sitting it out. Say, Pastor, I sit in the lobby and sit out to worship. You mad at me? I'm not mad, but I'm sad. Every church I've ever been a part of has a lobby church, okay? (laughs) This one's not unique. And if you're part of the lobby church, you know who you are. And I love you, but you're missing the dress rehearsal for heaven. And as flimsy and as imperfect as our attempts may be to get instruments and to get choir and to get vocalists and to get us to sing together, our flimsy attempt is in fact an attempt to have a dress rehearsal and say, "Let's get together and do you love Jesus and is your heart aflame for Him? And I love Jesus and my heart's aflame for Him. Let's put these flames together and let's let's magnify this thing and let's go have a little prelude and let's worship the Lord together for just a little bit because we're going to do this for a long time in the future. That's part of what we do on Sundays. Part of us coming and even giving tithes and offerings is an act of worship. It's our attempt to take our crowns that are are worth something and to give them to the Lord and say, I don't got everything, but true worship will manifest itself in you wanting to give and invest in the object that you're worshiping. Which is why if you, quote unquote, worship the Steelers, you say, I don't worship the Steelers. Well, what would you call giving your time and attention to something all week and studying and reading and hypothesizing and then when they come on the television and you enter into the presence of those Steelers playing today and I hope they win, but you come into their presence and you change, do you not? All of a sudden, you're alert. All of a sudden, you don't want to take a nap. All of a sudden, you're invested. All of a sudden, your emotions start to go up and your heart rate starts to go up and your blood pressure starts to go up. And it it, it evokes an emotional response from you. And if they do well, I want to buy that jersey and I want to invest some money and I want to pay for some tickets. What would you call that but a a a small, faint version of worship? This is why we give money to go to these games and to do these things because whatever you worship or whatever you, whatever you look at and you adore in some way, shape, or form, you invest in. And these saints take their crowns that they've won, their golden crowns, and throw them at the feet like a little kid who's earned just enough allowance money to buy a Christmas present for mom to give to her on Christmas day. I've earned a little bit, but whatever I got, I want to give it back to you in adoration and in praise and everything worships. And this is meant to be prototypical for us. This is meant to be prescriptive for us. This is meant to be something that we do and that we understand is important and I'll be honest this morning. I try to be honest every morning, but I'll be especially honest. I grew up in church and I learned how to serve. And I learned some theology and I memorized some verses, but it took me a long time to learn how to worship in corporate worship or in in my own personal prayer life. When I grew up in church, I was reflecting this week on some of the junior church songs that we sang. And while kids are kids and, and you want to have fun with kids, some of them were a little too fun and a little too shallow in their worship. And we try not to do this with our kids. We try to actually have something substantial. But I was thinking about some of the songs we sang and it made me laugh and cry all at the same time. The one that came to the mind for whatever reason that was just in the forefront <clears throat> was the song, You Can't Get to Heaven. I don't know if you know this song, but I'm going to teach it to you, okay? It's very easy. All you have to do is repeat after me. And then when we join together in unison, if you know it, you can join. If you don't, you can just listen. But all you have to do is repeat after me, okay? You ready to sing the worship songs that I cut my teeth on when I was in in third grade? You ready? Oh, you can't get to heaven heaven. on on roller skates. No, you can't get to heaven. On roller together, skate. Oh, you can't get to heaven on roller skates. You'll roll right past those pearly gates. All my sins are washed away. Praise the Lord. Now, I don't want to be overly critical of my sins being washed away and praising the Lord. That's a great ending. It was a great ending. But the front of that song had no theological substance whatsoever, right? The name of the song is You Can't Get to Heaven, first of all, which is a little misleading. Like, really? And then, you know, and there's, there's lots of verses. If you want the verses, just Google this. They're out there, okay? But that was the depth, right? Not exactly capital W worship in junior church. Then I go to big church, right? And in big church, it was solid. We had good theological substance. But to be honest, I found it boring. I just did. I found it dry, and I found it boring. And then I went to college. And I went to this church while while I was in college and it was immediately evident, like first service, people showed up to worship God. And I had never been in something like that. I just had never been, it just wasn't a thing. And I'm, I'm there and we're singing and like some people are crying. We're sitting and singing. Someone just wants to stand up and clap for no reason. People are raising their hands. Some people are like walking forward, like while we're singing, like to come pray at the front. I'm not sure if that's like God's section up here or what, but for whatever reason, praying here was better than out there. And, and there's all these things happening. And I'm, it's like these people are going to a different place. And I'm here, like I want to, I want to go, but I'm also don't want to go at the same time. Like I'm a little unnerved, frankly. But I'm watching people The best I can tell, do their best. And it took a lot of different shapes and forms and sizes and no one's criticizing each other, but they're just worshiping from the heart. It took me probably a month or two to join in with them. But when I did, holy smokes, it was fun. And it made going to church literally an altogether different experience. Instead of wanting to get out of big church worship and go help with the kids' ministry... I wanted to be in. I wanted to participate. A little group of us started uh, meeting about seven or eight minutes before the service and we would go behind the stage and probably five to 10 of us and we would just pray for five, six, seven minutes right before the service. Lord, would you meet with us? And would you speak to us? And we wanna be in your presence. And we just started worshiping. I enjoyed today's worship because one of the songs that I was introduced to during that little period of time in my life was Worthy is the Lamb. And and I don't oftentimes request a song to be put in the worship set. But today I specifically requested that that song would be in there because I knew this chapter and this sermon and I just wanted to sing it again and go back to those memories. And all of a sudden, not just church became better, but literally Now in my own personal prayer life, instead of just give me, give me, give me, I want petition, 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 my own personal prayer life began to change and began to center a little bit more on worship and talking to God and loving God, adoring God. And then my life began to change. From the inside out, began to change. And then it began to make sense. Why God, all through the Bible, Will command us, worship me, praise me. And at first glance, you read that and you're like, thanks for interrupting the conversation, God, and being like, hey, enough about you, about me, okay? Let's put the spotlight back on me. But when you understand what's happening when God tells you to worship him, it makes complete sense. He is worthy of your worship, but he doesn't need your worship. He'll be just fine with his hundred million. He can make another beast. He doesn't need your worship, but you need to worship him. I'll talk about this next week in in greater detail. I hate to make a statement without, without proving it to you, but you're wired for worship. You need something more glorious than you to look at and to give your heart and attention to. There is something humanizing about it. This is why men who have have been married, you know on your wedding day, when, when your bride walked down that aisle and all of the attention and all, I've never seen a not pretty bride. Every single one was arrayed and somewhat glorious. You know that when all of your attention was on her, that you felt more human. There is something about it that when you worship God, that it begins to add fuel to the fire of your Christian life. I would go so far as to say, without proper worship of God, your Christian life will never be where it should be. It's literally like the first commandment, that we love God with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind and with all my strength. And my simple question to you is that 30 minutes ago, we had an opportunity to worship God. How did you do? Did you worship him with your mind and choose to put your mind on the Lord and to think about him and to give him glory and praise? Did you try your best, as feeble as it may be, to separate what's happening in life and all the things swirling around you, and all the jobs and to dos and, and and struggles, and to separate that for a minute and just put your heart and affection on the Lord and to worship Him and to love Him? Did you take advantage of the opportunity that was staring you in the face a few minutes ago, or not? Did you take advantage of it yesterday? Do you get that we're invited boldly into the throne of grace to talk and commune with God and to even make requests of him? This throne room that John is explaining to us with all the splendor that you're invited to go before the throne and to actually have a word with God and he'll hear you? He won't punch you out of his end zone? Did you take advantage of that? Did you worship him? I think the point of Revelation four is to say, God is awesome and heaven is splendid and we better worship him because he's worthy. That's simple. And it's our job to do this. And if you trace the, the accounts of worship in the Bible, you'll find that worship begins to fuel other spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines in your life. And I wanna enumerate them all for you today, but you would find, for example, Job. Job has the worst day of his life. Kids, dead, livestock, gone, money, gone. Whole house of cards came crashing down. Job chapter one. And what does Job do? Read the end of Job chapter one. It tells you very plainly, Job worshiped God. said, naked did I come into this world and naked I may go out. And the Lord gives and he takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job gets a sense in that moment of God and his godness and Job and his jobness. And he aligns his perspective with reality and he worships God and it fuels him and allows him to carry on in the midst of some really tough circumstances. You going through it right now? Try worship. What about our witness witness? You ever flog yourself just a little bit because spiritually you don't witness to enough people and you don't share your faith enough? You know what fuels your witness? Worship. You have a mindfulness of God and how big he is and how glorious he is and how awesome he is. You can't help but want to share that with other people. But when you lose perspective and you stop functionally to worship God, It's out of sight, out of mind almost. And you don't share them like you should. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Mindfulness puts us in a state where we wanna talk about it more. This is why you talk about the Steelers while they're in season more than the off season. They're in front of your face, so you talk about them more. You worshiping the Lord will have a tremendous dynamic effect on your life. Now we're gonna get to, in case you're like, Pastor, Pastor, this I need practicality. Okay, tell me how to worship. Tell me what. Like, give me a formula here. We'll get to some of that in the next two weeks, because there's all sorts of things in Revelation four and five. There's generosity and there's prayers and there's confession and there's there's uh, there's instruments and songs. There's all kinds of stuff, and we'll get to that. But for the time being, let's just leave it here. May we worship. For the time being, you at least have an opportunity next Sunday when we get together corporately to do dress rehearsal and to at least remember your lines a little bit. To get together and to say, okay, tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday, I don't wanna just have some prayer session where I make a bunch of requests, but I want to tell God he's worthy. And I wanna think about why he is worthy. And I wanna give him praise and honor that he deserves. Because he is. So Revelation 4, what's it about? Everything worships. Don't be the exception to the rule today.